Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they, ha- and they have their eyes closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. There's never a good time uh, to break a series. Uh, I feel a little bit this morning like the dad who's watching a program with his child, realizes that it's bedtime and tells him it's time to stop it partway through and we'll pick it up another night. Um, so I'm glad at least Andy's really enjoying the series on the Ten Commandments and, and hope you are too. But we're not going to be able to go through the rest of the ten over the course of the summer. We just run out in terms of when Matthew and I are away. And we thought as elders, actually, it's such an important section of God's Word that it would be helpful for us to be able to work through the remaining commandments when we're all together in September. So we'll pause now after thinking about the first four, that think primarily about our relationship to God. And then in September, Lord willing, we're going to pick up five to ten and think about the commandments that primarily are in relationship to one another. And between now and then, I'd like us to spend a few weeks in Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew very deliberately 
pulls together seven parables at this point in Jesus's ministry. And if I could just take a couple of minutes to explain to you why, hopefully you'll understand why I think this passage, this chapter, is going to be a helpful thing for us to look at over the course of this summer. So if you've got the passage in front of you, if you just flick back a couple of chapters to 11 and 12, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there is a growing hostility to Jesus. People are getting more and more anti-Jesus. So back in chapter 11, Jesus has spoken to the people and said, look, John the Baptist has come to prepare the way for a Messiah, and you haven't listened to him. Not only that, second half of chapter 11, but you've rejected me. You've, you've looked at all the miraculous things, the supernaturally miraculous things that you can read about in God's Word. And if you're new this morning and you haven't had a Bible before, come and speak to me afterwards. I would love to give you one so that you can read about the miracles that Jesus had done. But the people were watching with disinterest. They, they refused to repent and believe. Then you get into chapter 12, and Jesus, as it were, locks horns with with the so-called religious leaders of his day because they'd added all of these rules about what you should do on the Sabbath and actually broken the joy of the day for God's people. They accused him instead of healing people through the power of demons rather than through the power of God. They treated Jesus from verse 28, sorry, 38 onwards as though he were a performing monkey. Didn't really care to think about what he'd done. They just wanted him to keep on popping out all of these miracles because it was really entertaining. And it all ends up, uh, verse 46 to the end, with Jesus having to separate himself from his own mother and family because of all of the things that are going on. Now, try and put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' disciples at this point. How are you going to feel? There's all sorts of things that are going to be leaving you feeling discouraged and confused. And perhaps particularly, there are two challenges that you just can't work out. Number one, why are so many people opposed to Jesus? Why are so many people not listening to him? Perhaps especially you're going to be thinking about that question of the religious leaders. Here are these uh, wise men who've been entrusted with the Jewish scriptures that we now have in our Old Testament, who are responsible under God for leading his people to worship him. The disciples are probably thinking, what is going on that has so many people opposed to Jesus? That's one thing. At the same time, there's also real confusion about the kingdom of heaven. If you flip back to chapter 3, the kingdom of heaven has been center stage since John the Baptist stepped on the scene. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, which means turning around in, in, in sorriness for what you have done. Repent. Sorriness, I'm going to get told off about that later. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then... Jesus takes on his public ministry. He, he has to deal with the temptation of the devil. And he picks up this theme when he begins his public ministry. Chapter 4, verse 17. 
From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you've got a cultural expectation of what that means. You're living in a world where you are waiting for a literal physical kingdom to take over this Roman Empire that you are being suppressed by. So think of it as the Roman Empire or as the British Empire. It's a literal kingdom that is going to break into your world right here, right now, and change the way you live forever. And because that's the kind of kingdom you're looking forward to, that shapes the kind of king you're looking for. You're looking for a king who's going to be a political superpower. Somebody who's going to lead an army of military strength. Someone who is going to physically sit on a physical kingdom, probably in physical Jerusalem, and rule over a physical kingdom. And it's got to happen now because that's what we're waiting for in this cultural expectation of this kingdom of heaven. But that wasn't happening. Chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is facing increasing opposition. And whatever plan the Jews may have had, and perhaps even the disciples may have had, for what this kingdom of heaven would look like, clearly Jesus' plan for this kingdom is different. So can you see how confusing and, and discouraging it would have been for the disciples at this moment to think about all the opposition and an unexpected kingdom of heaven. Now our context is different, but we're facing many of the same challenges today. So many people in our country are increasingly opposed to Jesus. We don't need polls and data to prove what we know personally, but they tell us the same story that more and more people in our country are opposed to the idea of a savior and of a king. On top of which, we can be left feeling really discouraged that the kingdom of heaven is not growing quickly. We're not seeing huge growth within our churches. Once faithful churches are often either dwindling to nothing or drifting away from godliness. And all of that can leave us thinking a similar question to what the disciples were thinking 2,000 years ago. How will your kingdom come, Lord? This summer, lots of you are going to be trying to tell lots of other people about Jesus. Uh, many of you are going to try and do it here on Saturday at the Linton Fun Day. Others of you are going to be doing beach missions around the place, as Andy's been uh, thinking about in his prayer. Lots of you are going to be doing that in kids' clubs and kids' camps. Many of you continue to do it week to week on the door-to-door. -door. What are you going to do when you start getting heckled on the prom? Or when you're out one Tuesday night and you knock on somebody's door, you get as far as saying that you come from a local church and somebody slams the door in your face. How are you going to respond when you're in the middle of a kid's camp and all of the kids are bored stiff? What's going to keep you going? 
what truth from God's word, what perspective that God's word gives us is going to help you keep sowing, keep serving, and keep praying for his kingdom to come. Because those barriers, those pushbacks are the things that we all face in our evangelism. And part of God's answer to those questions of how you keep going are the seven parables in Matthew 13. Jesus' parables teach us how people receive the message of the kingdom. That's the central theme of the parable of the sower. And Jesus tells us that. We're going to get into it in a minute. So that you're not going to be shocked and surprised and and overwhelmed by the way people respond to the gospel. He teaches us that right now, the professing church, people who perhaps would hold their hands up and say, I'm a Christian, it's made up of faithful Christians and those who will over time prove not to be genuine Christians. And though that's a sad situation to be in now, ultimately we will come to a point when all of the church is gloriously saved and shown to be the pure city of God. The bride of Christ is how the Bible describes it. That's what we're going to see in the parables of the weeds and the net. Jesus teaches us how God's kingdom grows both outwardly and inwardly. It's not in the way that we might expect. It's perhaps along a path and a trajectory that would leave us surprised. But actually, when we see what the final outcome will be, it will leave us with a sense of awe and wonder that God could have saved so many people, including ratbags like me and all of us. We don't deserve to be in his kingdom. And the number of people like us is going to be so enormous, we are going to be left stunned. That's the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. And Jesus teaches us how precious the kingdom of God is. To be with him in his kingdom is more precious than anything else you could ever know, ever. That's what the parables of the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure are all about. Can you see what Jesus is doing? Both for his disciples 2,000 years ago and for you and me here today. He's helping us see something of why there is so much opposition to him and the good news that anyone who trusts in him can be saved of their sin and be made right before God. He's explaining that. So it wouldn't be such a shock to us that we're left thinking, well, it can't possibly be a true message because look how they've responded or he or she has responded. And he's helping us see when we look out and the world seems to be crushing the church and you're left thinking, I wonder if all of these anti-Christian scientists who say that we've finally outlived Christianity and religion and now we can just move on to better things. Maybe they're right. Churches are shrinking as best we can tell. Maybe it's all come to an end. Jesus says, no, nothing prevails over the kingdom of God, which is growing and spreading and deepening and expanding in ways that will leave you to praise the God of heaven. That is what I want to encourage you with over the course of the next few weeks. And to do that, we're going to begin with the parable of the sower, which is one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. So I'm not going to look at it verse by verse. What I want to do is pick up on three things um, that I want you to remember 
as you're stepping out into a summer of opportunity? And number one, parables either reveal or conceal. So listen and pray that God would help people to hear. Verse 3, Matthew tells us, Then Jesus told them many things in parables. If you flip back through Matthew's gospel this afternoon, you'll see that Matthew's already recorded some of Jesus' parables in Matthew's gospel. So chapter 7, we've had the story of the wise and the foolish builders. You get to chapter, I think it's 9, and you get Jesus talking about the old garments and the patches that go on them and the new wineskins. So in a sense, we've already seen something of parables before, but not like this, Matthew 13. This is different. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel where he uses the Greek word parabolois, which is our word parables. And the way Jesus is going to use them is now a game-changing difference. It's a bit like, um, if you can remember being in school, or perhaps you're still in school, uh, you're in the middle of your, your maths or your French lesson, and your teacher realizes that the way they're teaching a particular equation, idea, whatever it is, it's just not working. They can see that the kids are not tracking with it. So a good teacher adapts to that, and they use a different approach. Well, that's how radical a shift in teaching style this is, only it's more complicated with Jesus. And the disciples know it. That's what sits behind their question in verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Implied question behind it, the majority of people don't understand them. So what are you doing, Jesus? We want you to be explaining everything as clearly as possible. And now you're shifting to using parables more and more and more. Why? Verses 11 to 17, Jesus answers by going back to Isaiah 6. Andy kindly read the beginning of that chapter as we began our service this morning. That sense of of the glory and the majesty of God, the, the, the way that none of us could possibly approach him because of how holy he is. And it's only because he has come down and made us clean that we can approach him. Well, you keep reading on in Isaiah and you get to verses uh, 9 and 10, which is what Jesus quotes in verses 14 and 15. And what he's explaining to his disciples is that parables do two things at the same time. To everyone who believes in Jesus as the king of the kingdom, parables are a wonderfully vivid way of not only understanding, but of growing in your understanding. But at the same time, if you refuse to accept that Jesus is the king of the kingdom, parables conceal they hide the truth of what jesus is teaching so let's see how that's lived out with his disciples verse 11 jesus says that the holy spirit has opened their eyes to see who jesus is and to trust him and they've been given verse 11 the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven now please don't misunderstand that in a kind of dan brown kind of way this isn't 
there's a secret pool of conspiracy theories somewhere which a select group of an ancient sect within an ancient history of religion know. It's none of that. In the New Testament, whenever there's a reference to secrets or mysteries, what the writers are referring to is things that were once hidden that have now been revealed. So as Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's telling them, look, for all of the misunderstanding about the kingdom of heaven, it has been revealed to you. You understand what the kingdom of heaven is and how it's going to grow, or they will do over the course of time. You know the disciples over the gospels. It's a bit like that, isn't it? But over time, they're going to understand the truth about what the kingdom of heaven is and how it grows. They understood That the kingdom of heaven is not a physical kingdom that would be established with Jesus' first coming and rule over the Roman Empire. It's a reference to God's rule and reign. And in a very real sense, God's kingdom has been ruling and reigning since he created the universe and will continue until he recreates the universe. But in a specific way, kingdom of heaven took a great advance when Jesus, the Son of God, became man. When Jesus hung upon the cross, he defeated sin and death for everyone who would trust in him. The power of the devil was gone. And at that very moment in history, the countdown on Satan's clock began. That's why we refer to the kingdom of heaven as a now but not yet reality. And if you've been in church for a while, that sounds quite familiar. That there's a real sense in which many of the blessings that are mine as a Christian, I have now. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that the Spirit of God lives within me. I know that I am now as secure as I will forever be. But you also know, this morning, there were however many things that you did that are not what you would have liked to have done. You're still wrestling with sin. There's still a real sense that as we look out in the world, we see brokenness everywhere. We don't see God's perfect rule and reign lived out over all places and all people. There is a but yet about the kingdom of heaven. Now, until we get to Jesus making all things new, Jesus explains in these parables how his kingdom is growing whilst we wait. He extends his kingdom through his word. That's the repeated drumbeat of this parable. All the way through, the seed and the word, they keep on coming so fast that we would know God doesn't extend his kingdom with national, political, military might. The God of heaven and earth is building and will build his kingdom through the sharing of his word. Which means, through the conversations you're having with your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, your family, for all the opportunities you will have over the course of this summer, That is how the God of heaven has chosen to extend his kingdom. And that's what Jesus teaches us in the parables. But for all who refuse to believe in him, 
they cannot understand these parables. So verse 13, those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Jesus is describing there a principle that would be a bit like me going to the British Museum and, and wandering around one of the exhibitions of the Babylonians or the Egyptians. I can look at some of their amazing hieroglyphics and their incredible calligraphy and penmanship, and I can admire all of it, and I know it's writing, but I have absolutely no idea what any of it means. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus is saying here. He's deliberately using parables so that many people wouldn't understand what he's teaching. You see, at the very same time, the same word that saves many will confirm others in their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus is at work in both. That, that was true in the Jews' day in Isaiah. Jews in Isaiah's day, I should say. And it was fulfilled in Jesus' day. Verse 15, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes and they have closed their eyes. That's what we've seen in Exodus, isn't it? As we've worked through the account of Jesus, sorry, God through Moses dealing with Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh and God did. <laughs> Pharaoh did in a way that he was responsible for. He refused to listen to the God of heaven and earth. But God is sovereignly working over all of it to demonstrate his power over all of the false gods of Egypt, to rescue his people and bring them into a land of freedom. God's sovereign in control of all of that, even over Pharaoh's heart. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Men and women are still responsible for the way that we hear. That's what Jesus says, verse 9. He calls everyone who has ears to let them hear. And even if you're here for the very first time this morning, that is a call that the living Jesus in heaven still makes to you today. When you hear God's word speaking, he is calling you to hear him and respond to what he has said. But at the same time, Jesus teaches us that parables are let me rephrase that. The way that Jesus teaches in parables, he does so deliberately to harden hard hearts further. So that actually his word still accomplishes its purposes. God is very clear that he will be glorified in both salvation and judgment. And God's word never returns to him void. He's doing more every time we speak, not just on a Sunday morning, but in all the conversations you have during the course of the week than you can imagine. So what does that mean for us as we go into a summer of opportunities? Firstly, I think um, we need to not oversimplify the parables, <laughs> which is something that we can all be tempted to do, isn't it? It's, it's easy to say, oh, parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And, and to an extent, that's absolutely right. Uh, most of them are, not all of them. Some of them haven't got earthly stories. They're about heaven. But 
You know, that's mostly what's going on. And Jesus is the greatest teacher there has ever been. He had this brilliant way of seeing something that everybody would understand and using it to illustrate something spiritual that they might otherwise not understand. But there's a paradox to parables. Jesus used them deliberately so that those who trust him would grow in their understanding and those who don't may be hardened in their unbelief. So practically, there are children being taught right now. There are six-year-olds in those Sunday school classes right now who may well understand the truth of a parable better than the business leader that you've been speaking to this week or the university professor that you meet on the beach or whatever it may be. Because spiritual understanding isn't a question of intelligence. It's an issue of God-given insight. Now, this one parable doesn't tell us everything we could possibly want to know about how you might respond or other people that you're speaking to might respond differently. But the rest of the Bible does. It tells us that God is the one who changes our hearts so that we stop responding like people who want to reject Jesus and we can respond like people who want to lovingly respond to him. And God wonderfully does that, particularly in response to prayers, the prayers of his people who are pleading with him to show the same grace to other people that he has shown to us in the first place. So as you're going through your summer and you're seeing some of these reactions and you know that some people just aren't listening, don't stop praying. Pray that God would be as gracious to them as he's been to you and that he would do, verse 15, he would enable them to hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and God would heal them. That's the hope of the gospel. So keep sowing the word. That is how God has chosen to advance his kingdom. But don't be overwhelmed to the point of shocked and withdrawing when some people refuse to listen. Parables reveal and conceal. And Jesus explains that in the parable itself, where we need to remember, secondly, that kingdom work is a spiritual battle. So prepare to persevere. Kingdom work is a spiritual battle, so we need to prepare to persevere. Um, Jesus doesn't tell us that the way that all of this seed uh, reacts is in an equal distribution. This isn't a statistical analysis of gospel effectiveness. Okay, But what Jesus is doing is showing us that many of the ways that we will seek to tell people about the gospel don't land the way that we would hope. It doesn't have the effect that we would long for. He is showing us that the world, the flesh, and the devil are fighting against our effort to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes, when you're speaking to, the gospel, to somebody about the gospel, you can almost see that what you are saying is going in one ear and out the other ear. It's just not even staying for long enough to really register which is partly because of somebody's heart, but also, verse 19, because the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. The devil is determined to not allow people to reflect on God's word. 
We, we need to recognize that we live in a world that is shaped by the instant entertainment mindset. And it's affected all of us in more ways than we might realize. How do most people live most of their lives? Scroll, glimpse, flick. Scroll, glimpse, flick. It's how we live so much of our life, isn't it? And that is the playbook the devil would love to keep everybody on when it comes to spiritual things. Just a little quick scroll, glimpse, flick, and it's gone. The devil is desperate for people not to have time to actually reflect on what God's word is saying. And one of the things we need to pray for is that the Spirit would protect the word that is sown so that people wouldn't just flick it away and forget it. But we're not only contending with the devil, we're also fighting against the world. Some people, like the seed that falls on rocky ground, seem to flourish the very minute they hear the gospel and it's all unbelievably encouraging. And as a church family, you might be thinking of lots of people who seem to have had this kind of reaction. Your heart's overflowing with joy because at last they've become a Christian. And then, using exactly the same word to describe how immediately they grew, Jesus says they immediately fell away because of trouble or persecution of the world. That's really heartbreaking. It's just desperately, desperately sad to see people respond with so much joy, face some of the struggles that come from persevering, and then just walk away. That's one of the reasons why we are so careful in a church to teach what we call the whole counsel of God. We don't just want to make Christianity a really simple, just say you love Jesus and you're fine forever. It's not as simple as that. Trusting Jesus is the only thing that will make you fine forever. But God's word tells us more than that. It tells us how he has equipped us to persevere in our faith. And actually, this section in the parable reminds us that what counts isn't just your profession of faith. It's your persevering in the faith. And perhaps you've never really thought in those terms before. You've come from a church background where you genuinely heard about Jesus, you trusted in Jesus and thought, that's great, I'm all good. Here's a parable that reminds you Trusting in Jesus is all you need to do, but it's not the only thing you need to do. So can I encourage you to listen to what Andy said in the notices? And if you're not regularly in a home group, or if you wouldn't perhaps regularly go, come this week. Because we're going to be looking at what it means to persevere in our faith. And we need to be encouraging each other in that as Christians. Jesus then warns us that many professing Christians drift away because they have become consumed by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Please listen to what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that you won't face anxiety in this world. You will. And the loving God of heaven calls you to cast all of your anxiety upon him. 
because he loves you and cares for you. Nor is Jesus saying that money is inherently sinful. It isn't. It's the deceitfulness of money that pulls people away from the Savior. It's that thinking that if only I could be rich, or if only I could be richer, everything would be fine. And to both of those things, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, Jesus says, if that's the way that you think about the world, it will choke your faith. Some of you may know someone who's being choked by those weeds right now. Someone who to this point has said, look, I I love and I trust Jesus, but actually all of the things that they're thinking about, the way they're responding to the struggles of life show that actually the big thing that they're focusing on is the worry of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Ultimately, the greatest thing any of us can do for anyone in that situation is pray that the sower would remove the weed. That's our greatest hope because their heart struggle is one that we can't fix. What we're longing for is that the sower who has sown that seed in their heart would pull out and clear away the weeds that are otherwise going to kill the plant. But in a wonderful way, God uses us in that process. And I wonder whether in the months and years to come, we as a church, we as individual Christians, but as a church family together, we're going to have opportunities to do this in ways that we haven't had to for many years before. This cost of living crisis is going to force a lot of people to feel like the Worries of life are strangling them. And we have an opportunity as a church family, individually and together, in the ways that God enables us to come alongside, not just each other, but we should be doing that, but also other people. And to bless them in ways that are going to help them, to show them the love of God right there in their situation where they are desperately anxious about whether they can put food on their table. Statistics this week about, uh, was it 20% of adults are now fearing that they can't put food on their table as often as they would like? That really is how people are going to find life here in Leamington. And we are going to have opportunities personally and as a church to respond, and we should, because we love the God who has promised to give us this day our daily bread. But we don't stop with the financial provision because our God has also given us his son so that we would know that not only will he provide for us in this life, but by sending his son to die for us, he has made every provision for the eternal life to come. So as we've got opportunity over the months and years to come to be a blessing to people financially, practically, let's take those opportunities and make the most of them to tell them about the God who loves everything about them, including, most of all, their eternal soul. That leads us then to Jesus' final encouragement 
which is that kingdom growth is supernatural growth and God is going to secure the harvest. You could hear all of those reminders about what kingdom growth is challenged by and all the struggles and the disappointments and be left feeling really discouraged, but that's not where Jesus leaves us. He reminds us that much of this seed falls on good soil, which is hearts that God has prepared. Hearts where the God of heaven has changed somebody to respond to him differently. And it's all a gift. Look at verse 11. All of this knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, it is given to you. Nobody earns it. Nobody's clever enough to work it out. Nobody deserves it. It is given. And what is given is then blessed in an enormously staggering way. Verse 23, still other seed falls on good soil. And it produces a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. That is not natural growth. That's not the kind of ratio that farmers are looking for. That is supernatural growth. Now, instinctively, we as Christians start thinking, oh, I long to be that hundredfold increase. And there's a right sense in which we should see the way that Jesus calls all of us to use all the gifts that we're given to serve him in a faithful way and be transformed by the gospel. That's true. But what I think Jesus is focusing on in the parable of the sower is you and I need to have that mindset as we go out on mission. There are going to be people that you speak to this summer who outwardly to us look as disinterested and as spiritually dead as the seed that is sown on the dry ground or the shallow ground or surrounded by thistles. But in ways you can't see, some of that seed is good soil. Lives that are a complete mess. Drug addictions. Police records. All sorts of things that you perhaps wouldn't even want to be mentioned in a church building. The love of God reaches out to people whose lives have been full of that. It takes people whose marriages have just become horrible places of anger and resentment and bitterness and the kids are scared. It takes children who are surrounded by fellow students who are dealing drugs and have no hope for anything in the world. takes people who've become so mentally broken, so depressed that just getting out of bed takes them everything they have for that day. And Jesus says, I love you. I've come to die so that you can know peace. Yes, in your soul, but mostly with the God of heaven who's made you. So that whenever the end of your life comes, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to look back on all the things that you have thought, said and done and think, I, if there's any eternal life to come, I am destined for hell. You can know that Jesus has already taken the price for your sin. So that you can be with him in his kingdom forever.
That's the kind of multiplication of blessing that we're supposed to be thinking about. As you go out this summer, as you're thinking about colleagues you're going to be speaking with, not just this summer, but for the years to come, don't ever think anyone is beyond salvation. God can save anyone.